do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Studying Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Katie. And I'm Jade. And this is Future Studying. today and it's a very delicious spring day. We're all enjoying this amazing civilised Victorian weather. Chris is the founder of Series Fair Food in Fairwood, is passionate about social enterprises, sustainable business and also sauerkraut, very important. In fact, <laughs> when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, Chris, I had a bit of a chuckle because I noticed that your biopic is a head of cabbage. <laughs> we need more pics uh, on LinkedIn like that. Uh, Chris has worked hard to provide employment for asylum seekers, has collaborated with urban farmers, has been involved in sustainable aquaponic farming, and tried very hard to diverge from his family lineage of farming and community enterprises, but almost inevitably ended up back at Ceres, which is quite the institution here in Melbourne. So Chris, we'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you're up to, and um, where you've come from, where you've sprung up from. I mean, right now it feels like uh, I've been living in my house with my, you know, my two sons and my partner, Pete, and um, it, looks, it feels like we've been on a round-the-world trip in our house, and like it's a boat. And um, so, so you know, there's been a lot of phone calls, Zoom calls, and not a lot of face-to-face over the last six months like everyone in Melbourne. Um, where did I come from? Um, I think like I've said, I tried to get away from what my family did, which was they were farmers, beef and sheep farmers, and um, my on my mum's side and my on my dad's side, they were they owned a general store, and my parents were teachers and and activists, and. I, you know, thought I was getting away from them. You know, I studied uh, communications and media and and um, travelled and then found myself, um, you know, doing a bit of permaculture and at series and into social enterprise and then one day looked at what I was doing and realised I was a farmer, shopkeeper, ad, you know, um, uh, activist, so um, I really, you know, I, I've not popped up from anywhere. I'm just doing what my family have always done. Mm, but through your own lens. We noticed that also you call yourself a social entrepreneur, which is a great turn. But um, I, can you just talk us through that a bit for those who don't know what that means? So social entrepreneur, it's basically business that really cares about people, environment, um all the parts of business that aren't just money, really. It's really having that wider focus about the impacts of what you're doing to make a living. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic and one that I'm quite interested in myself. What makes a business sustainable and how is that compatible? Um, Is it compatible in kind of a capitalist world that we live in and to genuinely care about people and put people before profit? And how do you see... How do you see those things and what actually makes a business good at its core? Yeah. Um, I think about this a lot, actually. Um, And it's really interesting the way we go to work. And uh, if you look at kids and the way they do work, uh, when they pretend to do what their parents do and, you know, we play the roles, you put on a uniform, um, you kind of, adapt a tone and voice depending on, you know, if you're the boss or the worker, Um, you know, you sell things and, you know, you set up shops and all this sort of stuff. And when we go to actual work, it's not a lot different. We put on uniforms and we take on roles and we put on a voice whether we're the boss or the, the worker and we sort of act out a way, you know, of I think of how we picture work is and how business should be. And actually, you can make that up. You can decide how you do that yourself. 
So we work in a warehouse at Fair Food. And why are warehouses grey, concrete, hard places where there's no room for, like, you know, laughing or music or art or, you know, feeling it's got to be a, a, a hierarchical place with, um, you know, sort of, you know, a serious or a very serious sort of tone, which is not surprising why um, the high turnover places, people don't want to work in a, you know, serious hierarchical grey concrete environment that doesn't really, you know, have a kind of people focus. Because when you go home to, you know, people's homes, from the place that they work, it's completely different. You've got pictures on the wall, you've got music, you've got good food, um, you've got, you know, uh, an atmosphere of like uh, of care and love and yet, yet we leave these places and then we go to a place like a warehouse and it's exactly the opposite. Um, so our approach to business is like early on we – discovered you know well this you know that we said to ourselves we can make this up we can do this the way that we want it so um we have shared meals and we get someone you know we have 15 16 nationalities at fair food and lots of them have great food cultures so we would get someone to cook lunch for everyone each week and we um, we'd all sit around and share this meal. We had food and we had a warehouse full of food and it was like, why wouldn't we share food together? Which started a tradition of people bringing leftovers to work and whatever you cooked the night before would be put out on the table when people would just share what each other had. So we'd have a beautiful lunch every day and have this lovely ritual. And we have, of course, there are people who work at, our, at Fair Food who have... Um, artistic skills so um, we have like all these gray walls and sort of flat panels on um, on our uh, cool rooms so we've got one of our you know really talented artists who works at Fair Food to paint beautiful murals really colorful you know um, inspiring murals on the walls that were just sort of very plain and very utilitarian um, we have music. We've had this series of music shows at the warehouse called Live at the Packing Floor over the last um, three or four months that was supporting artists who were out of work. So while we packed, we had string quartet play. We had, you know, um, Carl Ponuzzo plays beautiful soul music. We had, you know, a young up-and-coming indie, um, uh, you know, indie star Zoe Fox come and sing to us. And it's like... You can decide what your workplace is like and the way that it acts and the way that it behaves towards others. So, you know, we've always started first with the people who work there and then it sort of radiates out to, you know, the people that we interact with, our suppliers and our customers. So, yeah, we, yeah I think there is a way to do business well and, and it's really up to the way that you approach it. Mm. And it's a really ballsy, confident, human-first approach that I would say very few people are actually doing. Do you feel like there's any pushback on the, the approach that you're taking? Well, um, I think the um, the results really speak for themselves. So people come to our warehouse and they feel immediately welcome because there's a real ownership around um, the people that work at Fair Food. And one of the reasons is because uh, we have a really high retention rate. People want to stay because it's a nice, really nice place to come to work. And so um, if you stay a long time at a workplace, your team um, develops really good practices. People look after each other and they look after the business. And so the business does really well. And people, uh, you know, who need retraining or if you've got a high staff turnover, you're always starting from the beginning. But if you can retain staff and then bring staff up from uh, entry-level jobs into management, you get this deep culture uh, that really repays the business in terms of efficiency and what the quality of stuff that goes out and a, a sort of a, a deep memory, of, you know, a deep sort of 
enterprise memory around what we're doing and mm. and how to do it. So it's like generational knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we it it turns out that actually um, looking at the people first rather than numbers or the KPIs, and really making sure that the workplace is a very caring, fun, warm, um, you know, and, and it has boundaries and it has rules and it has. Um, really clear expectations around, you know, job descriptions and what people do and and how it all works. But when all those, which is I think, which is actually a caring thing, um, it works. It really works. And so, Fair Food as a, a social enterprise was profitable after year three, which is you know, social enterprises on average usually take about seven years to break even mm. and has been pretty much I think except for one year when we scaled up and we moved to a new warehouse and we upped our delivery days to a, to the full week um, every year apart from that big growth year we've made a profit for series and which has you know been money that's gone into social enterprise into you know our education programs and keeping the park you know the magical place that it is. And what do you actually get up to at Fair Food, Chris? What do we get up to? What is the yes. what does the, the enterprise do? So Fair Food yeah. is an online grocer, um, and we deliver you know gross people's groceries to around two 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 and a half thousand um, households a week. Um, we do direct to people's doors, but we also have around fifty food hosts or pickup points that we deliver to, so that you know, we might take five to ten households' groceries and drop them on someone's front veranda um, that you can go along and pick up your stuff there. You know, if you live in an apartment or you, you want to, you know, do your groceries in a different way where you might see your neighbours and go for a walk down the street, um, which which is kind of fun these days, you know, because we don't have a lot to do. What um, <laughs> excuse to connect with a human. I know. Imagine, I mean, you know, oh, I'm going out today to someone's veranda to pick up my groceries. It's now I become I might have a conversation. It might be exciting. awkward because I've forgotten how to do that. Someone might say hello to me. <laughs> um, so you're Melbourne-based. I know yep. that um, Brizzy Food Connect, the folks up there, yep. do something really kind of similar. But for those yep. who are listening in different states, oh, yep. are there any others that you know of in New South Wales and in in some of the other states? Uh, Ubi in New South Wales mm-hmm. do something quite similar. Um, I'm not sure in South Australia, WA or Tassie. Um, lots and lots of little um, CSA food box schemes, um, you know, organic delivery services, um, but not so much social. Um, I can't think of many social enterprises. Um, Green Connect up. In south of Sydney, um, right. there's another one that comes to mind. Um, there's uh, there's one in Byron. I can't that um, I can't think of right now. That I was looking at recently. <laughs> that just looked, you know, looked very Byron and idyllic and gorgeous with lots of you know, uh, a lovely farm connected to it. Yeah, beautiful. Well, we might share some of those in the show notes because people yeah. ask us pretty regularly. You know, I'm in the city and I'm not living on a farm in northeast Victoria, so I can't apply a lot of this stuff, but we can apply this and people can make this part of their reality. We just kind of need to help them out to know where to begin looking. Yeah, Chris, I'm, I'm noticing lots more, you know, regional food hubs, you know, mm-hmm. boar, boar, um, you know, some, some up your, you know, kind of like, um, up your way, uh, prom, prom Food Collective is another one where um, not only are they sort of sharing their local stuff, but they're bringing, you know, some of the whole foods and things out to the to the regions. Um, yeah, the bulk so, yeah, yeah. Beach, Beachworth food, food Co-op. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Chris, Ceres has lots and lots of prongs. You know, it's, it's yeah. kind of one of those organisations that makes us all realise that, you know, the sum of the parts is more powerful as a whole than it is in yep. silos. Um, but that can be overwhelming for people. When was it that you kind of connected the dots and realised that everything was interconnected and reliant on it, itself as a whole? Um, I, I just think, you know, series 
um, you, you just, uh, just look at the way that things have happened there, and they're all interconnected. All the all the you know, there's often staff that work you know in three or four different enterprises, whether they're teachers or farmers, all working in retail, and um, that to survive as a ten acre city farm in the city um, meant that the that we had to do I guess in permaculture you'd call it stacking and we call it enterprise stacking or people stacking Mm -hmm. that um, to work you've got to fit all these pieces together and that kind of in a very permacultural kind of one thing does does many one person has many functions it's all and and they build on each other so we've got a little market garden and called honey lane and honey lane um is probably half an acre um and it probably you could probably get 20 30,000 worth of vegetables out of there um but it probably costs, you know, to keep a farmer on there, you know, an extra $10,000. But if you put um, students through there doing hands-on classes from schools, if you do permaculture workshops, if you do pruning workshops, if you do um, a bee group with lessons, if you do excursions and tours and events, all of a sudden that has a whole lot of layers and, and it means a person could be working as a farmer or a teacher or a volunteer coordinator or, or someone who's doing events. It could be the same person or a whole bunch of different people. But that interconnectivity and that little ecosystem of enterprises is the thing that makes it work. Mm. And this is the way, you know, people are finding it with regenerative agriculture and permaculture and, you know, community life, that this is the only way that things can really work if you, you know, if you see them as part of a bigger system. And we've taken many of those principles here at Black Barn Farm and done the same thing. We realise that in a region where small plot sizes are all that is available to you um, and wanting to commit to that um, ecosystem, so we wanted to be in this subalpine environment, we yeah. had to be creative. So we kind of, we looked at places like Ceres and we kind of learnt pretty strongly that you needed to stack your systems and, and be yeah. really diverse and dynamic in what yeah. you actually offered in order to make it financially viable yeah. and able to be run by small operators. So just the two of us run it. Yeah. And I think that's the diversity. Um, if we'd listened to many of the business consultants that came through us and, you know, they saw the breadth of things that we do here. Yeah. And I think we have 17 or 18 social enterprises going wow. on plus lots of other, you know, different groups that, that, that interact or are based at series and we do this huge sort of broad range of things that were going there you know um conventional management wisdom that you know that comes from you know the 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 whole mba background is focus on your strengths get your core business right and you know push away all those other things that are sort of like you know you might be interested in but aren't you know making you money and if we'd done that we would have been closed over COVID. Mm, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, You've been diverse and been able to survive it. Basically, yeah. All of our education went into hibernation during COVID-19. Yet our, all of our food, our nursery, our timber businesses um, basically um, were um, – you know, and we're rushed and, and almost, you know, in the very beginning, some were completely overwhelmed as people, um, you know, found themselves really wanting to engage with, like, I, I want food as close to the supplier as I can. I've, there's this kind of deep need to get as local as I can with my food, my wood, my plant out my garden, buy every local egg and, you know, so I can bake. And, um, and it was that because we, we, you know, we had the diversity that series was able to get through. I think otherwise right now we'd be having crisis meetings and wondering how we were going to survive. Looking at collapse. Did that response at the beginning of COVID give you hope? Um, <laughs> honestly, it was actually like a, a, a kind of tsunami. Of, of, you know, we were just, it was felt like we were really holding on as the wave passed to just trying to scale 
up as fast as we could and and serve as many people because it just there was a, such an overwhelming need and a, and a panic, especially in those first two weeks of March, um, that we really held on. But I think, you know, after getting through that and, um, and weathering that, we're seeing now that it's not going back. Those those numbers, um, you know, apart from it's, it's sort of dropped back a little bit now. Things have settled down, but those numbers are staying. And suddenly, it feels like we've been propelled several, you know, three, four, five years into the future with the number of people that are suddenly kind of, you know, open. It feels like they've opened their eyes and they're here. Mm, and a bit of an so, awakening. Well, awakening. that must fill you with a sense of hope, does it? I think some ways I think there's some really, you know, there's some really terrible things and people have really suffered in COVID, but there's also some, there's been some benefits around um, pushing people towards simplicity um, and re-examining what they really need and what's important, um, pushing people towards, you know, a whole new way of looking at things and slowing down and um, being very home-based. And so I've, I've I've, you know, I've seen some some positives out of some real positives out of this time as well as, you know, a lot, obviously a lot of pain. Yeah, Ceres is such an oasis. It's such a magnetic place, you know, nestled right in the heart of a very <laughs> urban environment. And I feel like it might be the kind of setting where people could just wander in for their coffee and a treat, but kind of come away with little seeds stuck to them that might germinate later yeah. on. And do you find that it yeah. is? And that might be a bit of a template. And it's the same, Jade, with what you do at Blackline. You've actually created this beautiful space that is appealing across so many, on so many levels to everyone. I mean, really, anyone with a heart, beating heart would want to sit in that gorgeous garden. And is this a way that we can start to kind of bring people back together from our various poles? <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, all, you know, these little, we're like little, I feel like we're little, little ponds with, you know, r- ripples that go out and gently, you know, have an impact and and touch and, and you know, intersect with other ripples. And, you know, it's very gentle sort of long, you know, you have to long-term sort of thing. But over the years, when I think back at what series was almost 40 years ago, you know, there was only a handful of people coming here. And and these, you know, and these days now there's hundreds of thousands of people that come to series. There are places that are popping up all over the country. Even in our suburbs, it sort of feels like there's another burst of like, um, market gardens, food projects, um, you know, bowling greens being repurposed. Our golf course, our local Northcote golf course, is there's a major campaign to bring that back into the community as a wild space, mm-hmm. and yeah, and really- as well this whole kind of awakening around um, indigenous land practices and you know, um, you know, kind of basically natural, getting back to a natural economy and yearning for the knowledge that you know the indigenous you know indigenous cultures you know basically developed over you know 4000 generations um you know it's it's there's this i think uh it feels un- feels unstoppable mm. yeah the groundswell is suddenly almost at tipping point isn't it yeah yeah and is that something that you really see being able to live in an urban landscape chris like there's enough potential here in the city to kind of be transformed and to fit that vision um, for a greener, kind of more wholesome future? Um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure what future cities have, um, big cities like Melbourne and whether they'll eventually, you know, whether we'll eventually shrink and, uh, you know, it does, it feels like, um, you know, there's, you know, we don't, we haven't really, the world sort of, we've dictated to the world for a very long time and that will get dictated back to, you know, and and whether it's sea level rise or, you know, lack of water or whatever, our, we'll have to, you know, we, we can't push the limits or dictate the limits forever. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know about cities. I think um, hopefully we wake up fake enough um, definitely it's definitely um, 
interesting and, um, you know, it excites people to live in, you know, great cities like Melbourne. You know, I, I, it's it, the things that you can do at a city this scale uh, can be inspiring. It's just also the things, the bad things you can do are also, you know, quite, you know, impactful. Mm. I loved reading through Retro Suburbia, Dave Holmgren's, David Holmgren's book, because it did make me feel like these sprawling suburban cities had so much potential. Before that, it used to overwhelm me and I used to get kind of earnest and um, heavy-hearted about the idea of our beautiful, fertile agricultural soil in what are now peri-urban areas getting sort mm. of sucked in yeah. by these um, endless sprawling suburbs. But, I, you know, retro-suburbia made me think maybe it'll be okay. Maybe there's hope there. I wanted to ask, you've got um, two boys and uh, I'm not sure, how old are your boys? Um, 13 and 9. Yeah, just at that really open-minded, curious stage. I feel like, because mine are a similar age, actually they're exactly the same age, um, yep. and the way I talk to them about the state of the world differs from the way I talk to others because I don't want to overwhelm them and I want them to have a sense of hope but not a false sense of hope. Um, yep. I want them to be activated and awake and aware but I don't want them to be overwhelmed. Um, how do you kind of p- position the state of the world with your kids? I I mean, it's funny. I guess when I think back when I was a boy and my parents were activists, I didn't really pay much attention to them. And um, But, of course, that stuff, everything that they were doing was sort of seeping in and and it's the same. It's like gardening too. I was, you know, more interested in blowing up my dad's cabbages with firecrackers and now, (laughs) you know, a total, you know, I love cabbage, kind of like a sacred vegetable to me. Um, your LinkedIn profile after all. That's right. That's right. Um, so, I, you know, I don't do a, we don't have a lot of direct conversations. You know, some things might come up. Um, you know, there's all, there's often some conversations around, you know, meat choices when they want to go and eat, you know, some kind of takeaway chicken. And, um, and, <laughs> and you know, because yeah, animals are important. They're really quite, they love animals, but, you know, um, deep fried chicken is a is you know something else that they love and trying to make those connections but apart from that do a lot of like f- have faith that what happened to me will happen to them that that you know I remember I can remember in my early 20s basically walking out the back door of my share house and going almost like a robot going must garden now and and it came out of nowhere and and it was like my dad was you know I grew up in his garden and but had no interest in actually doing it when I was a kid and showed no interest and he he just let me get on with being a kid but come that day I couldn't I couldn't not and it was the same about their values and I think um, if you live with it um, they'll you know they'll, they'll come through and then I often sometimes you get the odd snippet when you hear your kids in a situation where they don't know you're listening or um, around other children or people and you hear something that, you know, obviously it has come from them listening or watching you do things and you go, okay, yeah, it goes through. Yeah, by osmosis they're absorbing. That's reassuring because I spend my life kind of oscillating between letting them completely do their own thing and despairing yeah. and yeah. Um, lecturing them till the cows come home. But Katie's yeah. the first one to remind me that being puritanical doesn't interest anybody, yeah, yeah. especially well, the, the nine-year-old. Yeah. Well, we, um, <laughs> you know, we like everyone, this COVID's been terrible for like the amount of screen time that kids have had, you know, with online learning and, and just socialising with friends. But one of the things I've really noticed is that um, the the overload of school computers and things like that has, has my youngest son has has started going out down our down the Mary Creek, which is our local creek, with the, with mates every afternoon. And they've discovered the storm drains recently, and my old, older son. And so there's all these kids that are running up and down the creek at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that they weren't before at school, and and they're becoming. There's all these little you know, Huckleberry Finns out there because, yeah, boys of, adventure. because of COVID coming back all muddy and, you know, getting into trouble and running up, you know, having adventures and storm drains and dangerous places and falling out of trees. And it's been great. 
Um, but yeah, like we, we, like so many other parents just have those constant battles over trying to actually get them off the screens and outside doing that stuff more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's what's the new show that's just been released social dilemma. dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. So our kids have their laptops currently hidden in the laundry cupboard cause I figure they'll never find them there and they're staying there till the end of the school holidays. <laughs> That's my solution to managing it at the moment. Awesome. <laughs> Perhaps or not. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about Fairwood? Um, so Fairwood, um, so Fairfood is is a you know we look after we don't look after we we buy from around 150 farmers and grocery makers and food businesses. Um, so one one day and a our Fijoa farmer who is a, also a, sort of a famous uh, eco-architect, a guy called Paul Ha, came along um, to Fair Food with his Fijoas and he said, Chris, I think you've got to start Fair Wood. And um, I was like, I, the closest thing to wood that I know about is broccoli. <laughs> the only kind of trees that I know about. And um, Paul was like, um, okay, all right, and um, patiently went away, and then over the next sort of year, kept would bring me like sawmillers and forest ecologists to come and visit and chat away, and um, I don't know how he did it, but at some point or other, I remember looking over to the corner and there was a pile of wood or timber there, and I was like, oh, how did that happen? And um, and we were sort of you know, Fairwood was in business, and I I have great belief in this man. He's just one of those. Um, you know, forces for for positivity has stood by his values and built amazing things over the years, and um, and so I trusted him. And Fairwood, we pitched Fairwood um, as a, a a business that buys um, timber from that is grown on farms, so that it takes. Um, and, you know, demand away from, you know, buying, you know, the $5 billion worth of imported wood we get from around the world. Much of it's like illegally logged, um, often from Indigenous communities where it's just stolen um, and and grown on farms where it can, you know, do great environmental services like hold carbon, hold water in the soil, um, create shade and windbreaks so that soils don't dry out, you know, protect stock, um, give farmers a, an extra income stream through timber or firewood, um, and then, you know, all the habitat stuff that it creates. So we thought, wow, that's, you know, that's, um, a, that's a fairly powerful business enterprise, social enterprise model, pitched it, um, won, won a pitching competition that seeded money for a manager, someone who actually knew about wood, and we hired um, Peter, Peter Smith, who's our wood, our, our manager, and, and we started just putting it out there, telling people that we had timber that was grown on farms that was as, uh, you know, uh, as... I guess you could know where it came from as as much or more than any wood that you could get with Bunnings that has a stamp on it, which is, you know, you might not actually be really, you know, too confident about where that really comes from. You know, wood, um, you know, illegally logged wood and, and counterfeiting wood um, is the third largest illegal enterprise in the world behind um, dealing drugs and counterfeiting. So enlightening. I did not know that. Yeah, it's an enormous, enormous, you know, black um, black market illegal business. And if we can grow trees on our farms here, and we don't have to buy rainforest timber, um, even though some of it's got stamps that tells us it's good, um, we, you know, we're going to be we're going to be doing something a lot better for our world. Um, so yeah, that's how Fairwood started, and um, we've been—it's about two years old now. It's got its own. We just recently moved into our own warehouse, its own warehouse in Darabin, just down the road from Fair Food, and it's going gangbusters. Um, especially now that everybody wants to build garden beds, everyone's stuck at home, so everyone wants to do things at home. They want to build garden beds and decks and 
and put, you know, do renovations and all kinds of things. So, um, yeah, that's, that's And that tsunami of ethical decision-making seems to be kind of capturing people from all perspectives and I imagine if they're going to put a veggie garden in, they will consider where they get their wood from as well. Yeah, that's that's right. And, you know, it often turns out that the these decisions are not really not expensive or you know the much you know we've found that the wood is really affordable and um you know it's not like a long way from what you'd spend on um timber that's possibly doing a lot of damage so yeah people are once people know and there's a choice that was one of the things about fair wood was there's a lot of talk about i you know i want my builder to buy me wood you know some native plantation grown native hardwood and the builder would go out and look for it and come back and go, I can't find it. It's too hard. Um, just let me, how about I just go to Bunnings and I'll get you, get some merbau or some, you know, some pine that's been cut down from Eastern Russia or, you know, something like that, something I know that I can get and it's going to be cheap. And people would often go, oh, okay, it's too hard. And and that was the thing. So mm. one of, that's the thing about having a fair wood is saying, look, there's an alternative and here it is. Just come down to the warehouse like you would go to your local hardware with your trailer or your ute and we'll put it on and you can go and build your garden bed or your deck or your extension or your, you know, your floor. So, you know, that's one, That's really one of those things that Fairwood wants to demonstrate that if we talk about the stuff, it's got to be available. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Chris, because I – read that in your bio and I was really intrigued because I think there are a lot of things obviously we've unraveled the food system um, a, lot of, a lot of us are interrogating where our food comes from and I I know that there must be so many other kind of black holes in our vision um, in terms of what we use each day and the stories that are behind those products and um, understanding that wood might not be all that even if it has the stamp of approval um, is actually a really empowering thing. And um, like you said, once people have that information, uh, we can all make better choices. So we'll definitely link to that um, in our show notes. Yeah, and and you're, you're in your house a long time and you look at those floors or those that cladding or that deck, that garden bed, and it's really nice to be able to have a story with it, a story that you're really proud of, going, oh, we built that and that's those trees you know, are from that farm down, you know, in South Gippsland and that was milled, um, you know, it was um, milled at Amber Creek Sawmill, it was dried up at Fairwood and I, I feel really good about that. Rather than having that sort of uncomfortable kind of breathe, deep breath in feeling like, mm. oh, I hope this stuff's all right. Or, or apathy is the other thing that often I think people are hit with. It doesn't even occur to them to think about where their wood came from. Um, and that apathy is sort of, I guess, what you feel like we need to be a bit shaken from so that we've got this awakeness that allows us to make decisions that are, are conscious. Are there any other things that um, spring to mind, Chris, that you think could uh, use a little more attention from everyone? I know you've worked really broadly um, with refugees, gaining employment um, for people in our communities. Are there areas that we just need to kind of wake the F up? Um Oh, we, we've got a market garden up the creek from a um, series called Joe's Garden. Um, it's a heritage market garden. It's been market garden there for about 150 years and I suspect it's like river flats, land, beautiful deep soils that um, surely, you know, um, there would have been Murnong and other Indigenous foods grown there for millennia. Um, and we've started to grow Murnong there uh, with as a partnership with the Wurundjeri Council. And um, we did our first planting. We just put a couple of rows in and we're helping the local creek management committee um, build the diversity and the strength of their seed stock. And so we had a ceremony. Um, our farmer, Emily Connors, um, invited the community down to plant, help plant the first Murnong crop to go back into that bit of land and a couple of hundred people came down we had to give them sort of one little piece of Murnong each to plant it 
and um, and they were smoked by Dave Wanda, a local elder, and it was a really beautiful ceremony. And I think it just um, pointed to a yearning amongst people to get to know and understand the knowledge and that had kept this country before we were here in a really, you know, healthy, sustainable state for a very, very long time. And I think we're, we're craving for that knowledge. So I think uh, learning those things, learning about cool burns, um, uh, you know, someone, a friend of mine, um, you know, Kirsten Larson was talking about doing a cool burn on her. She'd done, some, done a workshop and they were doing a cool burn on their place um, up north of Melbourne. And I was like, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to learn. I find this, this stuff is really exciting and I feel like I'm not alone, that people are really excited to learn about, you know, the way Indigenous people managed land, grew food, did business and, um, you know, sustained a sustained a, a, a life for a very, very long time. Yeah, so true. And do you have any recommendations around where people can start you know, engage with local Indigenous communities um, where can they go for information? Um, you know, I like so many people have recently. You know, I think Dark Emu um, is a great book to, to like absolutely get your eyes open to s- start in there. We we um, you know at series, it's I've, you know it's not really easy engaging. Um, with our Indigenous community and found found it's like it takes a very long time. Um, and, and it's not linear. Not linear. It's, um, it's not really used to linear. It, it, the, the white fell away is very kind of yeah, A to B, but it's yeah. not. Yeah. yeah, it's um, and so, we, yeah, we, we put out our, our, you know, feelers and, and um, you know, are open to it. And I think you really have to let it happen. And we've got some relationships that have been going for, you know, a few years. But actually they, I've, I've you know, find there's a real um, tentativeness on, on both sides uh, of, you know, of about com- coming together and not, not really knowing how. And I think being okay to admit that, don't know how to do this. Mm, and, a bit and, awkward. I'm uncomfortable. Is it politically yeah, incorrect? Yeah. What can I or can't I say? Yeah. Um, mm. And but but sort of being, I think the thing is to be open with it and look at it as like, well, it took a very, you know, this was ruined over decades and decades and decades and, and taking the longer view and people who I'd seen do great things are the people that put 10-year horizons on projects and start going, that's, you know, okay, first step. If we get to the first 10 years, we're getting somewhere and then look beyond that. And and I think having that kind of patience and acceptance around, okay, I don't know what to do, is mm. the way forward. Looking at places like New Zealand going, well, they were there. They were in the same place we were, you know, 30, 30 or so years ago. And when I... You know, when I travel there now and the, um, you know, the white mayor of Auckland gets up and, and does his welcome in Maori at length and then sings a song, yeah, you know, to an, to an event, I go, oh, wow, this place, it's, you know, I grew up in New Zealand and, and that would have never happened when I left, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. Hey, I went quiet a moment ago because I was hunting for a beautiful quote that Kirsten Larson actually, I got it from her. It was um, said by the Aboriginal activist and educator, Dr. Lilla Watson. And she said, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us walk together. Yep, that that is so true. And it's really, you know, it's the foundation. And I feel like that's kind of the foundation that series steps from. Yep. Um, I, I also want to talk to you about, you were talking a moment ago about how we need to look at kind of the long near. It's not okay anymore just to be looking at the next one to two years and we mm. can't bind success up yeah. in what we achieve year on year but what we're actually working towards in a decadal sense. How do you, though, personally, you know, I think we can kind of all acknowledge that there is this sense of urgency that pushes all of us and keeps us all awake a bit at night, but then the most, the majority of us who've done a bit of 
reading and have a sense of the scale of the issues that we're dealing with, realise that it's a long game. But how do you personally, how do you tackle that balance? Um, I, um, I, before we came to series, um, my wife and I, were, you know, we were doing forest activism over in WA and um, which is quite, I, you know, I really think there should be an act, Anzac Day style thing for activists who have been on the front line because it's the closest, <laughs> I reckon it's the closest thing to war you'll ever do and um, there should be a parade and all that sort of stuff and we should have that kind of like, you know, activist day and, um, you know, walk down the street and, you know, in your um, dirty clothes and, and you'd have to eat some maybe, you know, some really bad stews and lentil stuff and things like that. Um, <laughs> but, but it's sort of like that kind of um, oppositional activism is exhausting. It's like war. You can't do it forever. Um, mm. So I think what keeps me going is really positive activism, the sort of things that are practical and and have, a, you know, a, a build things and, you know, create something and, and really involve people and create, you know, communities and that kind of thing. And they're really, that's really nourishing. And I think not um, seeing, if you can take a long view, you realise you don't have to do everything this week. Um, and you don't have to take it all on your shoulders and um, the responsibility, I think, um, often see people who who take it upon themselves to feel like they are the protector of, you know, a thing, you know, an aspect of the environment and, and um, or almost, you know, burn themselves out with the, with the worry and the, the anguish and the effort around um, working in that area. So I, I think if you do take that long view um, and give yourself time and and it's about really turning up, not big gestures or, um, you know, the kind of big statement, it's, it's really about turning up week after week and doing something and being committed to something. And it's like if you think about a forest, um, if you do a whole lot of sort of significant kind of um, you know, big statement actions, it's really a lot of it is about one-off sort of things and it's kind of like planting an annual garden. It's gone in a year. But if you uh, want to grow something substantial like a forest, you've got to commit to it and you've got to be in there in seasons and out of seasons and kind of commit in a sort of very ritualistic way that you're going to be there so that you can create that big tree, that big movement, that big community that's lasting and diverse and, you know, really deeply satisfying. And do you think that's also about sometimes saying, if I am going to do something that's worthwhile, it, one, it, <clears throat> it will take a long time, and two, it may require a bit of sacrifice on my behalf. I may not be able to have all of those other things that I think I want if I feel strongly enough and deeply enough about this one big thing that I need to show up for week in, week out. Yeah, I think. Is that just the reality, or am I <clears throat> over dramatizing it? <laughs> <laughs> I think you there's um, there um, COVID sort of showing it. It's that bringing it back home of like mm. pulling you know pulling it in. You can have a significant impact in your um, in your neighbourhood and being very happy with that um, group. Of people that you work with and know know well and have deep relationships with, um, rather than maybe you know having feeling like oh, I have this network of ten thousand friends on my LinkedIn and we're all part of this you know huge thing and and it's got to spread and spread and spread, um, like, and or I've got to move up the. The, the chain of this impressive job and then I'll go and work for that place and this place over a period of time of like laying down roots of slowing it down of like layering things and gaining depth I think in the end brings you know a deeper satisfaction and a, mm. and a deeper impact locally it's I think a lot of things a lot of things can be quite um shallow and, and appeal appear you know these days 
um, you know, there's a zillion networks you can join and be part of, and and they they sound impressive. Like we've got 180 branches around the world of this network, you know, doing this thing with a bunch of people, and really it's sort of like a it's a Facebook group of people, um, you know, posting pictures or something like that. Whereas a, a small group of people who are doing a you know a food swap or a CSA box scheme together or um, creating a community garden or saving, um, you know, replanting wild space in their neighbourhood, um, it might be small, but it has, you know, for those people and those relationships, it, it actually has a much deeper impact. Mm, that's potent. I guess it's it's all of us stepping out of that endless growth paradigm and realising that there are truly limits to growth and sometimes that's actually for the best, especially when it's about human humanness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've um, we've got, you know, we've got all these great tools to to create the big big networks and and connect, but it feels like the connections are very tenuous sometimes. Mm, A bit empty. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you have a sense, Chris, and not to be too esoteric, but of a sense of what you're meant to be doing in the world? I know that a lot of people probably feel like, oh, there's something I need to be doing. What is that thing? And maybe it is just being human and having relationships and um, being a part of a community. But do you feel like you're doing the thing that you were born to do? <laughs> <laughs> like I was saying at the beginning, I always thought I'd do, you know, different things like and now I was, you know, my, my, between my, fam- my farming family and my um, retailing, my grocer general store family, uh, I always thought the farmers were the, you know, the cooler. You know, they had tractors and horses and guns and dogs and the mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> bush and, um, and that's what I wanted to be. But I've discovered in my life I'm actually a better grocer than I am a farmer and although farming's part of my life still, um, but I also found that that's something that I'm just um, I'm better at and accepting that instead of resisting it and going, actually, it's a force. It can be a force for really, it's for good. It, it's a real, you know, it's something that connects people and employs people and um, can play, it plays a, a really, you know, key role in the food system and that's nothing to be, you know, embarrassed or or kind of disappointed about. That's something to be proud of, and and also then it ma- makes me feel I kind of I'll, I honour my grandfather now of like going oh, I see you in a different light now that you ran a general store and you played a role in your community, a real connecting role in your community, and um, yeah, 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 there's. So- not resisting yeah. maybe your natural aptitudes and inclinations and just... Mm, yeah, yeah definitely some things I don't think you've got a choice in. Yeah, we could all learn a bit from that, just sort of really... Actually, we spoke to Hannah Maloney uh, in another interview and she said the same thing. You've really just got to follow who you are and follow your gut. Yeah, yeah. And, and I really sometimes it's fate. It's just like it feels sometimes I feel like you get... You just get... Uh, it's like your a bit of flotsam in a stream and the, the you know, the weight of you and the the flow of the water, just where you get dropped on which river bend is where you get dropped and and, and here you are. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. But you've got to be willing to let go of the riverbank. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking, I was talking before about theories being so many people's North Star you know, we kind of look at you and we think you're bloody incredible. You've been on the ground for a really long time. You've shown that it's financially viable. You've shown that there's an ability to get people to engage long term. So you've kind of got the money piece and the human piece. And you've talked about the fact that you've got 17 different enterprises operating under one banner. How do you do that? There are so many people out there trying to make a a difference. And it's so easy to get overwhelmed with the complexity of things and it's really easy to just decide not to do something. So I'm, I'm really intrigued to know how you take some of those really complex problems and distill them down into something that's doable. It's the doing bit that makes most of us feel empowered and makes most of us feel like we belong. But yeah. how, how, do, how have you done that? I think it, it's 
if you come and see a place that's uh, fully formed or you know, where it is, where it's at, like series, uh, you really have, you have to go turn it back and see the um, the first, you know, there's a schools program right now, They, you know, and they have impact on 300,000 school kids a year, you know, incredible. But when you go back and there was one or two teachers in the beginning and as the teacher took kids around in really homemade displays and um, was really improvising the lessons and, and really it was so much about getting kids out of the classroom, you know, as the bottom line. And then halfway through would like put sausage rolls into an uh, into a, like a warmer on a, on the way around the tour and then whip them back around at the end to eat the warm sausage rolls just before they burned. And that's, it's like, okay, it's like it's all begins held together by string and, and really it's just someone's idea who goes, let's do, let's do it. And it's really... Um, it's done with a either you know a card table or it's done off a you know, bootstrapping. Off, or it's done, yeah. It's done off like the the grocery at series was a a, um, a pig stables first, and um, and then you know you know some money was got together and and put some plaster in there. It was lined and then it was a it became a, a grocery. But really, which really started off with a table that had a few soya milks on it. And that was series grocery before. And so many of these things, fair food started on a picnic table as a staff co-op. So are you saying that it literally is about sort of that cyclical nature and that evolution and maturity of an organisation and that for those who are kind of still at that bootstrapping phase, hanging in there is critical because it does evolve and it does develop and that's actually the way of things yeah and the and it's i mean you've done it with the co-op and um yourselves it's like some it often takes a particular kind of person that i think of i call them weeds and um (laughs) they are like you've got to find weeds are the ones who can do it there are certain people and they're often you know interesting people who are you know sometimes um don't always go by the rules um they don't need many resources uh they don't need you know a comfy desk and a comfy chair but you give them a project and a bit of freedom and say could you do that this is i mean i remember saying this to m connors down at joe's garden i said m we need to have a um, farm stall here so that we can make this farm financially sustainable two weeks later off a table she was just selling a few greens um in two, what is it now, five years later, that employs three or four people. I mean, the other week she called, she's, you know, they just, they, they, you know, through COVID, they're just having record weekend after record weekend in terms of like numbers of people coming down and just wanting to be on the farm where a few years ago M was just selling a few greens that she'd picked and gone, okay, I'll just put a chalkboard sign up that's saying, you know, farm gate. And here it is. It's become it's becoming a little institution up there in Coburg. Oh, so, I love those weeds. Yeah. I love it. So go out and get weedy. Yeah, and then the really there's a really there's a second stage at too because weeds are they um, they establish the ground, they make it fertile, and then they move on to new ground. And so you have to have the perennials and the the people that can put down deep roots and and really back it up with the systems. And our CEO, Cinnamon Evans, is one of those. And we've got a verb series called Cinnamonize. Um, (laughs) Basically, it's what Cinnamon does, has done, you know, for for a couple of decades behind weeds, come in behind people who are passionate with ideas and can make things happen. Um, People like Cinnamon can will create the systems that mean that they carry on for you know and that that can fit people in who aren't weeds and need the comfort and structures and and also the systems that more mature enterprises need so there's a real it's a real you know if you look at it in a permaculture way it's a real six a people succession thing yeah and i think often um projects will get off the ground and they'll go for three years with that weed uh, you know, running it and getting a whole bunch of spark in there and, and prepping it. But really there's a time, you know, it's founder's, founder's syndrome or, you know, yeah. the whole thing where the next 
succession of people who are, have the organisational and the, the human skills um, need to come in as well. So that's one of the big secrets of series of being able to find those weeds and then, you know, find the people to come and cinnamonize. On that note, can I ask you one final question? And is there one burning thing that if you could share with our listeners that they could kind of be led by, what would it be? One burning thing. Yeah. We sometimes talk for an hour in circles and then we feel like we need to kind of pop back out at the other end with that kind of kernel. I think, you know, the thing that really, that always like brings me is like go outside and whether it's, you know, planting, uh, you know, your veggies or turning your, turning the soil or just getting outside, you know, when our lives are so inside-based, is, you know, if in doubt, <laughs> go out. That's if it. in doubt, go out. There couldn't be a better way to finish on a perfect day like today. And there you have it. Thanks again for sharing an hour with us in your ears. If you're enjoying season two, be sure to drop us a review so that the algorithms help others find us as well. Next week, we've got a duo treat with the co-founders of Open Food Network, an Australian-based digital platform that connects eaters with farmers. It's Kirsten Larson and Serenity Hill. See you then.